Good morning, it's Laura Huey and you are joining me for Sociology 4451, which is an advanced seminar in policing here at the University of Western Ontario. Uh, today, I want to talk about something that's sort of seen as a new, a form of newer form of policing, although it's actually not that new, having been around since the late 1980s, and that is community policing. I'm going to take a very different take from how this material is usually presented. When you read textbooks or you hear people in, in lecture halls discussing community policing, certainly there's this sort of sense that this is this fantastic development, this is you know exactly what we want police to be doing, so on and so forth. It's all you know sunshine, unicorns, and rainbows. And don't get me wrong, I've seen some fantastic examples of community policing. However, I'm going to argue throughout this discussion this morning that uh, that is still typically more the exception than the rule in a lot of places in uh, North America and elsewhere. By the way, still dealing with the flu, still got my little sore throat and, and head full of pain, um, but we will persevere through this. After all, um, we're all in self-quarantine, so hey might as well make the best of this. And my best of this is perseverance. Okay, so let's get going here with community policing. Let's, let's see why I'm such a cynical, skeptical person. All right, I got a basic definition, which I pulled from, uh, from the UK. And the basic definition is the process of enabling the participation of citizens and communities in policing at their chosen level ranging from providing information and reassurance to empowering them to identify and implement solutions to local problems and influence strategic priorities and decisions. That was a, the world's longest, that was one sentence, kids, one sentence. Uh, but, and it's one sentence, it's packed full of a bunch of concepts and ideas that um, I will argue are much more uh, of an ideal than, than a practical reality. Community policing, as I say, goes back to the late 1980s and at least in, in terms of some sort of level of popularity. Um, most definitions, and there are a variety of dif different definitions of community policing, include some aspect of this notion of almost, uh, if you will, a co-equal participation of citizens uh, and police in dealing with issues around crime prevention and disorder as well as identifying local problems and setting policing uh, priorities. That's where it starts to fall apart immediately. Um, and we see this in this definition from the MPIA from 2012, which they say at their chosen level. Originally, when you look at some of the older definitions, and I'm thinking of people like Trojanowski, who talk about this relationship, like I say, is as though it was co-equal. It's not co it is not co-equal, nor can it be co-equal for a variety of different reasons, some of, uh, some of which we'll explore as we go through this discussion, but I'll give you one right off the top. There's some fantastic work that's been done by my colleague Steve Herbert at the University of Washington, in which he's looked at uh, low socioeconomic status communities, so communities that where there's higher rates of poverty, higher rates of um, uh, marginalization, stigmatization, you name it, right? 
uh, you might have um, issues with broken families. You might have issues with with uh, um, the lure of the streets for, for many young people because their opportunities in that community for getting employment are blocked. All sorts of different uh, addiction, all sorts of different social issues. Well, it's not clear to me that those, those types of communities, and this is the argument that Herbert demonstrates as well, that those type of communities have the, the capacity to engage in a co-equal relationship with the police in terms of setting priorities for crime and disorder, in terms of getting out and running community um, crime prevention initiatives. We're talking about people that oftentimes, single mothers that might be working two and three jobs, um, and that might not have adequate childcare for their kids because you know they're struggling to get by. It's not clear to me or as I say, Herbert, that, that we, that this responsibility for policing the community should or could be 50-50 or anything approaching 50-50. And what Herbert's work demonstrates is that, calls it the unbearable um, lightness of community, which is a take on a, uh, on a Milan Kundera novel about the Hungarian Civil War. Anyway, it doesn't really have anything to do with uh, hungry, but it's a great title. So the unbearable lightness of community, the idea that, that we're talking about here is that, that not all communities have capacity, resiliency, and so on to take on this type of a role. And I'm going to go through, and like I said, unpack some of this as we, as we go through this morning's discussion, but that's something I want to flag for you up front. This idea that, you know, this is going to be this joint relationship. Um, and also we'll talk more about how the police view that the idea of that joint relationship in a lot of communities, not all communities, but in a lot of communities, what are the supposed benefits? Let me give you some, some supposed benefits, uh, some, some highlights. So reducing crime now in terms of the research literature, there is weak positive evidence and I'll give you some, something a little bit more uh, concrete to hang, to hang on to some research that was done, a meta-analysis. Um, but for now, let's just run through these. So there's some weak positive evidence, some positive findings that community policing can reduce crime, some neutral, no negative. Another supposed benefit, reducing disorder and antisocial disorder. There's some fairly strong positive evidence, mostly positive findings, some neutral, no negative. So reducing crime, not great. Reducing disorder, antisocial behavior, much better findings. Increasing feelings of safety. There's a there's fairly strong positive evidence. Most most people in communities like they like community policing, and we see that in terms of uh, uh, there's a strong set uh, almost all positive findings, no negative findings in relation to improving police community relations and community perceptions. As well, in terms of increasing community capacity, uh, the, the, the official research literature says unknown. There's a gap in the evidence. The little bit of evidence that I've seen, and I just mentioned it, Steve Herbert's work, suggests that it's variable. Um, and then, of course, in terms of changing police officers' attitudes and behavior, there's some fairly strong positive evidence on attitudes, but mixed evidence on behavior. This is because, and this is an important point, 
for those, those who are interested in issues around police training and so on, or even, or even police education. Uh, here's the thing. We have to unpack attitudes from behavior. We oftentimes, when we do evaluations of police training, do an immediate evaluation on whether or not attitudes changed. But attitudes, people, you know, I'll, people, when we're filling out those, it's like course evaluations, quite frankly. People fill out based on that morning, well, okay, I think, you know, I think I learned something. I think this professor was great. But two, three months later, turns out they don't remember anything from the course. Well, then really the course wasn't that great if you didn't have any takeaway. And the only way we can really know that is by some distance from the initial time of the training till later on when you actually might be called upon to operationalize the knowledge that you picked up in training or in, in your course. So there's some fairly strong positive evidence on attitudes, but ultimately, does, does uh, community policing change behavior? Mixed. Let's keep it moving here. I said I'd mention a really uh, interesting piece of research. So Charlotte Gill and her colleagues from George Mason University uh, did a systematic analysis of community-oriented policing, looking at does, uh, if we gather a bunch of studies, really good high quality studies on community policing. Does it reduce crime? Does it reduce disorder, fear, increase satisfaction, and increase a sense of police legitimacy among citizens? That's a lot that they, that they tried to unpack there. They identified 25 studies containing 65 independent tests of community oriented policing, which quite frankly, um, and of those 65, they were able, 37 of these uh, comparisons were included in the meta-analysis. I find that horrifying that, that that number is so low. Like I said, community policing we've had around for 30 plus years, and uh, that's a very low number. Considering the amount of money that has gone in in the United States and in Canada to community policing initiatives, the number of evaluations uh, of some sort of rigorous quality should be much higher than this. That's that's shocking. Anyway, what did they find? They find that they found their overall findings were that community-oriented policing strategies have positive effects on citizen satisfaction, perceptions of disorder, and police legitimacy, but limited effects on crime and fear of crime. So, our overall findings are ambiguous and that's a direct quote so millions and millions and millions of dollars on community policing and and everybody will tell you anecdotally this is fantastic we love this and yet the research does not actually support the positive outcomes that people would suggest should be there here in Ontario, the next iteration of community policing is the community safety and well-being movement. And uh, what I have up on the screen is the Ontario, uh, the, there was a, um, the Ontario Chiefs of Police uh, created a model, it's called the Ontario's uh, Mo Mobilization and Engagement Model of Community Policing, OMEM. Remember that, OMEM. OMEM, O-M-E-M, OMEM. -E 
Uh, hang on, it's caffeine time. For those of you that can't see this slide, because I'm also doing this sim simultaneously in sort of more of an audio podcast form, what we've got is we've got a slide where on the happy side it's green, so community engagement and liaison, this is where you've got police officers out. I love it when it's um, community policing week. I go to my Covent Market here in London, Ontario. Uh, for those of you that have never been to London, Ontario, it's like a little, it's cute, but it's a little fake London, England. So there's a Thames River and a Covent Market. So at Covent Market, I go and then I'll see a couple of police officers there and get talking with senior citizens about all sorts of different issues. And uh, that's community engagement and liaison work. I always like to go take a picture of them, um, which is very goofy. No, I don't selfie with them. I probably should like everybody else would. Then the next level, we go from green to blue, which is community safety and consultation. This is like, oh, this is about problem identification, analysis, response, and evaluation. This is like, hey, there's there's some issue in the community. We better you know, work with the community to identify it. Then we go to yellow, which is community mobilization and crime prevention. This is where actions and initiatives uh, take place. Um, it says here, Police officers take to motivate and support neighbors to deal more effectively with the root causes of crime and insecurity in their neighborhood. And then we move to red, which is enforcement and crime suppression. And at this point, there, there is not much community activity happening here because this is, um, this is, there's crime prevention through social development, but quite frankly, most of that would be occurring outside of the local community. Uh, because most of the resources will not be in the local community. And then, of course, uh, you know, law enforcement, not, not much uh, community activity happening. This is for high, this is where there's, there's a, uh, a significant situation going on in the community where there's a high need for police assistance, something like gang-related violence. So I go through this and um, I look at this, this little chart and it's got concentric circles in it. It's got colors. It's got a model where the arrows go one way and the other way. And I couldn't help but think I've seen this model before. And sure enough, it reminded me of the IMIM model. The IMIM model is a use of force model that was, uh, that, uh, you know, is very commonly used by the RCMP. And it also has concentric circles and different colors like blue and yellow and red and green, and also has arrows going in both directions for escalating up, escalating or de-escalating. No, there's no such thing as escalating down. And it turns out, uh, I was right, the, uh, the OMEM model is actually based on the IMEM model because I asked somebody. And um, the idea behind that was that the OMEM model would be more uh, easily, uh, you know, would stick more in the minds of police officers because it, it hang on, I need coffee. Hmm. Basically, it was a deliberate choice to, to make the second model uh, look like the first model, so it would be more memorable for police officers. C 
see, I was right. And it's a little, I have to say though, it, it was unintentional. There's some unintentional irony here. I'm just going to point that out. Well, back in the old day, we had a different form of community policing and it was uh, community policing old school was what I call the Mrs. Kravitz model. For those of you that don't know who Mrs. Kravitz is, she's from a, she's a character from an old, old TV show back in the 1960s called Bewitched. And Mrs. Kravitz was the, neighbor, the nosy neighbor that was constantly pulling back her curtain, sticking her nose out on, to the window pane, spying on the neighbors. We all, believe it or not, there's usually somebody in a, in a neighborhood, depending on your neighborhood, who is a little bit more curious about what's going on in the community than others. Ideally, when community, the idea behind community policing, if you go back to like the 1950s and the 1960s, you had people that were invested in, residents that were invested in the local community that would kind of keep an eye on their neighbors. In the old days, uh, going back to when I was a kid, the old, old, old days, and this will horrify some of you, but when you were a kid running around, uh, the neighbors not only watched out, but we got spanked by every adult on the street. Like if you were running around doing something stupid, the adults on the street took stepped in, took responsibility, and would check your behavior. I remember getting spanked by the neighbor for crying out loud. I don't know, remember what stupid thing I did, but I got a spot on the behind from the neighbor. That was old school. Uh, nowadays, if you if you if you swat your neighbor's kid, the police are going to show up. Um, and I, trust me, I get that. But it was a very different sort of mentality. At the same time that that was going on, you also had police officers in urban areas walking police beats. And the police officer owned that beat. And that they might be on that beat for ugh, decades. Everybody knew that police officer. And nowadays, when, then, of course, what happens in the 1950s is you get a giant move from urbanization to suburbanization. People start living further and further apart. So police officers who in rural and uh, rural and um, more suburban areas have been in cars. Basically, what ends up happening is even cities now have to be patrolled by cars because police officers have to carry, cover such a large distance. We also become more fragmented as societies. We don't have a Mrs. Kravitz or, uh, well, I still do. Actually, in my neighborhood, we have some really great neighbors that watch out for each other, and that's fantastic. But quite frankly, when I talk to my students about whether or not they know a Mrs. Kravitz or they are a Mrs. Kravitz, the answer is typically no. Most people nowadays, uh, especially in major urban cities, live in uh, high-rise buildings where you might be lucky to know one neighbor. One of the upsides of COVID, by the way, is that we are now forced to start to get to know our neighbors a little bit better. And as a consequence, people are saying, oh, no, crime's going to rise, particularly thinking about things like domestic violence. And while I don't discount that, I also think a positive value or positive benefit, potential benefit from COVID is we might actually start to build a sense of uh, increased community in spaces where we haven't had that community since the 60s, 70s, 80s, and so on. We might see a return to old, a little bit more old school policing where neighbors take care of neighbors.
or I might be delusional. It could be one of those two things. Let's talk about some of the crit. So along in the 1980s, what happens is we get a move towards this sort of this uh, nostalgia for what we had in the 40s and 50s. And the idea is that, you know, let's police resources are tapped out. They're all, uh, quite frankly, this is a cyclical issue where, um, you know, crime rates go down or, it, you know, money has to be moved somewhere else because of the economy, so on and so forth. Police budgets get slashed. That drives the need for new strategies, as does, and in, like I said, in the late 1980s, this sort of nostalgia for the old days where you had the cop walking the beat and you had Mrs. Kravitz looking out her window. And so in the late 1980s, we see the emergence of this paradigm, which police services across North America jumped on and said, oh yeah, we do community policing, although quite frankly, most were not. They might have had it up on their website if they had a website, but most and more often than not, and there's a ton of research to show this, a lot of uh, policing, um, and I'm thinking particularly of San Francisco where I did my work in the early 2000s, said that they did community policing, but actually when you talk to the police officers, they would tell you, no, we don't. Okay, so that I've jumped ahead to the criticisms, but just to give you a little bit more context, um, there's some work by a fellow by a uh, theorist by the name of David Garland who looked at community policing and you know in the 1990s he looked back at the rise of it and what he came up with was this concept of responsabilization and it's an important concept and it's one that needs to be explored further. Responsabilization is the process whereby the whereby governments and government institutions recognizing that there is a limit to what they can do in terms of with available resources and funding start to push some of the responsibility for different social issues onto the private sector and the public. And so it's not coincidental that in the late 1980s we see the rise of, of things like neighborhood watch programs. You start to see um, more emphasis on individual crime prevention. Community policing really as is co-equal res uh, response set of responsibilities, actually tries to mobilize the public into taking on some low-level eyes and ears function, policing function in the local community, as well as adopting a, a stronger um, use or reliance on crime prevention techniques, right? So gate your, gate your residents, make sure you got appropriate locks, you know, get get cameras, get a dog, put up signage, right? Be responsible for preventing your own crime. Your own crime. That was totally wrong. For preventing your own victimization. And that is what Garland's talking about when he says responsabilization. And it, by the way, it wasn't just in relation to uh, crime prevention. It was in a whole bunch of other different areas as well. And we see responsabilization coming up over and over in a bunch of different ways. So in the United States right now, there's there's some discussion about churches being responsibilized to take on um, the care of, of uh, the poor. And this comes up over and over and over again throughout history. But now in 2020, we're talking, we're hearing discussion in, in the United States about governments wanting the chur churches 
to be responsible for feeding and care of the homeless as though they're pets. I, and that's quite frankly what a lot of the discourses sounds like. Okay, so that's the context for understanding the rise of this movement. And so let's focus on some of my criticisms here. Okay, first of all, and this is, there's a ton of research. Again, don't need to take my word on this. There's a ton of research uh, that has been very critical of community policing, community policing rhetoric. And again, Steve Herbert has done a fair amount of work in this area. He's got a couple of really interesting papers. One's called, I think, Hard Chargers and Station Queens, in which he looked at how police officers in the United States uh, in some parts of the United States, looked at community policing. And what Herbert found was that police officers are typically invested in the status quo. And again, I don't want to generalize. Um, this is going to vary widely in, from community to community and from country to country. But in the United States, where Herbert was, was working, which was, by the way, in California, he found that they were invested in the status quo and they wanted to see themselves as macho hard chargers. They did not value community input and they were not being rewarded for community policing related tasks and duties. Whereas hard charging activities like producing good arrests were rewarded. And this, by the way, continues to the present. Uh, it's that has changed that has changed a little bit, but um, there's still a lot of emphasis placed on on making good arrests. And I remember talking to an inspector back in the late, in the early 2000s, late, late 1990s, early 2000s, uh, about this. And he was a huge proponent of community policing in Vancouver. And he said, but the incentive strategy for doing this work is still messed up. This was, you know, 20 years ago, we are still focusing on arrests. Okay. What, how, what do many cops really think of community policing? Well, again, this has changed, so I don't want to, so we're not generalizing here. We got to, you know, I'm extracting from the research literature to tell you what the literature says. But again, you know, we only have, we don't have a, as rich a body of research as I would like and to see all the variations and nuances. But the reality is, as long as policing is still invested in rewarding good arrests, many cops think community policing is soft, feminine type work. And there was a very derogatory, I remember talking to police officers in, in San Francisco in the early 2000s, and there was a very derogatory term that they used or the type of work that they thought it was. I'm not going to say it. I'll just say, you can figure that one out. Another issue is this. Uh, back in the late 1990s, um, there was this big move towards community policing stations. So we're going to decentralize the police and we're going to put them in a bunch of different communities. And we're going to have a visible presence and people can come into the local community, report crime and so on. But the reality is that costs a lot of money. There's a reason why you have headquarters one, um, or you have one or two buildings at maximum. That is because 
it costs a lot of money to put police in all sorts of different places throughout the community. You've got leasing costs, you've got electricity and water and everything else that goes with it. And those that ends up being super costly and oftentimes ineffective. There is no clear research that I have yet to see that shows that community police stations consistently generate any type of crime or dis disorder deterrent. One a long time, he's now long retired, a long time ago, a police sergeant uh, said to me, community policing is an example of a desire for a Mercedes type service on a VW budget. Everybody want, thinks this sounds really cool, but nobody wants to pay for it. Every year I ask my classes, would you be willing to pay higher taxes to fund community police stations? And I get maybe one, maybe two hands maximum. I remember doing this in classes of up to 100, and sometimes no hands would go up. I'd ask a similar question, do you want to pay higher, would you want to see police officers, you know, walking the beat in your local neighborhood? And, you know, some hands will go up. And I say, do you want to pay, are you willing to pay higher taxes to fund this? And the answer is, hell no. And, and quite frankly, this is a recurring theme. Not just for uh, my students who, quite frankly, are typically living on modest budgets. But you see this in all sorts of different areas. I remember being in California and San Francisco when the, it's interesting. It was the total opposite. Um, the police budgets would always get voted yes, but then what would happen is budget increases for the local schools would not pass. And I remember being in California when schools in that state had roofs that were, you had asbestos, uh, sorry, the schools had asbestos. Some of the roofs were collapsing. The students didn't have enough books because here's the thing, people might want might desire that Mercedes type policing service, but it's coming out of somewhere because nobody wants to pay higher taxes. And another issue that comes up, and this came up in my own research when I was um, doing, my P, doing my master's and my PhD, and that was, I remember interviewing a fellow who was responsible for training community volunteers uh, when in Vancouver, there was a big push towards community policing. And this, again, this was in the late 1990s, early 2000s. Here's the thing. You might get community buy-in, but over time, there, there's a sense of volunteer fatigue. In my own neighborhood here in London, we, when I first moved in, there was a move to have a community watch group here. I attended half of one meeting. I'm a terrible criminologist. You know, I'd read all the research literature and I was kind of like, eh, I don't know about this, but I'll go. And um, the reality was it was basically one or two people and everybody else just sort of went to the meeting and it died off. It, it goes, go back to what I said about the capacity for communities to actually engage in any type of meaningful way. The reality is, as much as there might be some initial enthusiasm, as this, as this trainer of volunteers pointed out, you realize that once you get started, that this is a never-ending job, that you are going to be out there in the rain, in the snow, 
when you don't feel like it, when your kids are sick, when you've got to work late, when you've got a dog that, that's sick, you've got, you know, you've got financial issues you have to worry. Like you have, like we have lives and I get that. Quite frankly, you don't see me out walking around. Well, that, you know, I do walk my dogs. And if I see sketchy people, I do, you know, I do, I do the Mrs. Kravitz. But do I want to be out there every single night? Hell no. That's, there's a reason why I got small dogs. So that I didn't have to go take long walks in the middle of December or January when it's like minus 10 outside. Um, we get it. Volunteers, they come, they're full of enthusiasm, they go. Life happens. And so to keep sustaining this community buy-in is incredibly difficult. In places where they, uh, where police services use um, the, the uh, medium of community forums, it's the same thing. You get a few people self-select and most of the rest of the community stay home. Again, one of my neighbors said to me, we had, I guess we had a community forum in my neighborhood about something to do with heritage, something, something, I don't know. I didn't even know about it, but quite frankly, I probably would not have gotten dressed to go to this meeting and, you know, it's, it's winter. I'd rather be in my fleecy pajamas, quite frankly. And so I missed a big thing about what was going on in the community. This is what happens. So the people who are the most invested in a particular issue self-select to go, but they're not necessarily the people that you always need to have at these meetings. And so it's not clear that they're always the most functional, best use of time in at police time or community time in terms of solving issues. And on that note, there you go. I'm going to, uh, the next section of this community policing discussion will come back to why some of this is quite difficult and why it's not that I'm against community policing, it's that we need better strategies and we, we need to have, an, or the strategies that currently work, we need to evaluate and then carefully replicate in other cities, but we're not doing that work. So it's, just to be clear, I'm not a community policing hater, I'm just saying it's incredibly difficult and as a Band-Aid sort of solution, like it's up there with motherhood and apple pie, when you criticize it, you're going to get killed, metaphorically. Um, I mean, it, seriously, it's like criticizing motherhood or kids, right? It's, it's like criticizing babies. Like, who does that? Well, I'm doing it. And I'm not criticizing babies, but I'm criticizing this concept because if we want to really make community policing work in the best way possible, we have to identify what works. We've got to carefully test. We've got to replicate. Now I'm repeating myself. It's clearly time for me to stop. So we're on a break. I'll see you for the next section.